0: Uh, Well, thank you Sherry again for being with us today. Exciting to have her with us before she heads back to Colorado, right? (laughs) She said, what now? (laughs) Um, Well, hey, we're continuing in our series on the book of Judges, and uh, today we come to another cycle where Israel has fallen away from the Lord and always at the beginnings of these uh, cycles, today we're in Judges chapter 6. If you have your Bible, you can flip over there. At the beginning of this cycle, as with all the cycles, the Scripture reads, and the Israelites did evil again in the eyes of the Lord. So they've fallen towards sin. they fall fallen prey to sin. they become enwrapped in sin. They have a desire for sin more than they have a desire for God. And so they're pursuing after their sinful lifestyles. And so as a result of that, as God does with these other cycles, God allows for a foreign oppressor to rise up, And to come against the Israelites and to make their life miserable. And so for seven years this continues. And on this particular occasion, uh, the foreign oppressor are the Midianites. The Midianites are a nomadic group that lives, we have a map for you, that lives southeast of the Dead Sea. And so they're moving up into Israel Um, during the springtime, more than likely, and through the summer harvest as well. And they're raiding Israelite villages. They're pillaging the Israelite territory. They're burning down their crops. They're taking what they want. They're destroying their livestock. They're burning down their homes. And then they leave and go back toward where they were before uh, for the winter months. And then they return again uh, when there's something to come and um, take from the Israelites. And so the Israelites have experienced this for seven years now, back and forth. And finally, they've gotten to the point where they are tired of it, where they are ready to cry out to God. And so they do. They repent of their sins. They cry out to the Lord. And so the Lord raises up another deliverer for them. We learned last week the deliverer Barak, who uh, Deborah was also a part of that. Um, he raised up him, but this this week we see that this guy that God raises up is a fellow by the name of Gideon. you probably heard of Gideon in the Scriptures before. And so what we're going to read today in Judges chapter 6, uh, we'll read verses 14 through 17. This is where Gideon begins to have his conversation with God. God's come to him, he approaches him, he says, Hey Gideon, you're the guy, you're the deliverer that's going to um, deliver Israel from this oppressor, the Midianites. Okay, So let's stand together and read from the Scriptures, Judges chapter 6 verses 14 through 17, and I'll remind us again, as I do many weeks, that we stand each week to be reminded that this is where truth comes from, that God's word is reliable, that God's word is faithful, that God's word is true, and so we stand uh, to be reminded of that. So Judges chapter 6, verse 14, let's begin reading there. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of the Midian hand. Am I not sending you? Verse 15, but Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. You may be seated. Okay, so let's just kind of dive in here together. I want to start at verse 14. It says that the Lord turned to him, that is the Lord... Turn to uh, Gideon. So Gideon is having a conversation here with the Lord. That's going to become important here in just a minute. But he's having this conversation with the Lord. And so it says, The Lord, the author recognizes this, that the person he's talking to is the Lord, is God. And so God turns to Midian and he says to him, He says, "'Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands.'" So here's the Midianites. These are these foreign oppressors that they've been coming into Israel, raiding, pillaging the land for the last seven years. And he says, "'Am I not,' God says, "'Am I not sending you Gideon.'" Gideon, you're the one who's selected. You're the one I want. I've pulled your lever. You're the guy who's going to go and be the judge or the deliverer for Israel.'" And then Gideon gives his response, and Gideon's not really sure about this. Gideon has a couple of, "Mm, I'm not really sure moments. He says, verse 15, but Lord, how can I save Israel? So again, he addresses the person he's speaking to as Lord. Thank you very much. right there on the page. So he says, but Lord, how can I save Israel? Number one, here's my reason number one, why I'm not sure I can do that. My clan is weak. In other words, I come from a group of people who we're not known for being folks that go out to battle. We're not known for being a group of people who are really brave and courageous and can take down strongholds. That's not who we are. I mean, we like sitting in the library. We like going to the park. We like, you know, all these sorts of things. We're just not the kind of people who you think of that's going to lead Israel in some sort of a battle. He says, number two, my other reason why is because I, in this weak tribe, am the least. That is the weakest in all of my family. So he's given his two reasons here why he thinks that God should not select Gideon to be the one to deliver God's people. And so Gideon asks God, in response, because he's unsure, for a sign. God, are you really sure that I'm the guy? I mean, look at what I got going for me. I did a whole lot going for me here. He wants some empirical evidence. He wants something that can verify that indeed this is God speaking to him, that this is not some sort of a moment where he's just kind of, maybe something he ate last night, or maybe he's hallucinating, or something like that. And so Gideon asked God for a sign. Verse 17, If I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you, O Lord, who is talking to me. I want to be absolutely crystal clear that the person I'm standing here talking to right now is God, you, in the flesh. Verse 18 Please do not go away until I come back. Bring my offering and set it in front of you. And the Lord said, again, the Lord, referring to the person that Gideon's talking to, said, I will wait until you return. So Gideon goes away. It says that he used up an ephah of flour, which is about this high. It's a clay jar, but about 10 gallons or so of flour. And so he takes an entire 10 gallons of flour. Remember, Israel's been raided. They've been pillaged. Um, Gideon, at the time when God had found him, was inside of the wine press. He was uh, dressing out his... Meal for that night inside the wine press where he could hide from anybody coming by that would see him having this food. And so for him to come up with 10 gallons or so of flour to present to the Lord as an offering, this is a pretty big gift, a pretty big offering that he makes. And so um, he comes to God and he says, verse 20, take the, or God says to him, okay, now that you've prepared this meal, this goat, this flour, he says, take the meat and the unleavened bread and place them on the rock and then pour the broth out over top of them. Now, I want to take just a minute here for a second. This is kind of a timeout and aside in the sermon to identify this individual that shows up here in the text as the angel of the Lord. Okay, that term angel in the Old Testament text is actually could be translated messenger. So this is a messenger of God, So don't get tripped up on the word angel, because when we think of angel, we think of, you know, person with wings and they fly down and they've got a halo and all this kind of stuff. That's not what we're talking about here. This is a messenger of the Lord. In fact, this phrase, the angel of the Lord, appears all over the place in the Old Testament text. If you have your, your bulletin in front of you and you could make a quick little diagram for me because I forgot to put it up on the screen for you or to prepare one for the screen, I want you just to draw two parallel lines with an overlap in the middle, but not parallel as in over top of one another, just an overlap at the ends. On one of those lines, you can write underneath of it the age of the law. On underneath of the other line, you can write under it the age of the spirit. See, these are the two ages of human history. At the beginning of the age of the law is what is creation, and then followed by the fall, and it's all the Old Testament history under the age of the law. And the part of the Godhead, friends, that is most active during the age of the law, the most part of the Godhead that's most active here on planet Earth is God the Father. God the Father came down and tabernacled. The word tabernacle is a verb. It means to dwell. God came and tabernacled among his people. God the Father came, and he was in the Holy of Holies in the back of that tabernacle. Later, they built him a permanent place, a house called a temple, and he was in the Holy of Holies there. So God the Father came to planet Earth and was on planet Earth during the Old Testament era in the Holy of Holies, The part of the Godhead that was most active on planet Earth during the Old Testament period, I'm saying it again and again, is God the Father. Now, this overlap period is what we would call uh, the time when Christ here was on Earth, the 33 years of Jesus' time on Earth. God the Father had left, going back up to heaven. The part of the Godhead that came to Earth and was most active on planet Earth during that time period when Jesus was here was God the Son, whom we know to be Jesus. Jesus is God in human flesh. Okay, He is God in human flesh. And then that second line that you've drawn off to the side that continues on is what we'd call the age of the Spirit. And so when Jesus left and went on up to heaven, he said, I will leave you with a comforter, I will leave you with a counselor, I will not leave you by yourself. And so the part of the Godhead that God sent to earth to dwell among his people during that present age all the way up until today and continues on until the end of time is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. Paul said 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and... I'm, maybe I'm not right about that. First Corinthians chapter six and verse you can, I, mean, I think it's five and verse 19, but anyhow, he says, "Do you not know that your body is a temple?" Remember, the temple is the place where God dwelt in the Old Testament wall. Do you not know now that your body is a temple? of the Holy Spirit. So God dwells inside of you if you are a believer. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus and have a real and personal relationship with Him, the Holy Spirit has come and dwells tabernacles inside of you now. Now, having said all that, we get an idea when the Godhead was here on planet earth during the age of the law, when the Godhead is here during the, during the present age, the age of the Spirit, and that little overlap period where God the Father came in human flesh. John chapter 1 and verse 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1 and verse 14. In any case, Having said that, just because God the Father was the part of the Godhead that was here on planet Earth during the Old Testament age does not mean that the other parts of the Godhead, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, were not active here on planet Earth. We have plenty of times in the scriptures where God comes in uh, in his other forms— Recognize the Trinity here to planet earth. For example, the Holy Spirit came and dwelt in King Saul and King Saul prophesied. The Holy Spirit came and dwelt in King David and King David prophesied. The Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep friends and the opening lines of Scripture as the world was about ready to be created. Just the same. Jesus Christ. Sometimes we think about, oh, well, Jesus came, was like invented or was created and placed in the womb of Mary. And that was Jesus's beginning. No. Jesus is eternal as is God the Father, as is God the Son, and Jesus was active here on planet Earth at times during the Old Testament age. And this is one of those times. You notice that I mentioned to you several times the person that comes to talk to Gideon is identified in the Scriptures as the angel of the Lord, properly interpreted, the messenger of God. The Lord. So Jesus Christ came down to earth, had a conversation with Gideon. The author of the scripture recognizes this and keeps referring to this angel of the Lord as the Lord. Thank you very much. And Gideon himself, this is the whole point of the sign. He's like, hey, give me a sign so that I can know, Lord, that it is you that I am talking to. Do you follow that? There's plenty of other other times in the scriptures where the angel of the Lord appears to people. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And guess who was talking to Moses out of the burning bush? The Lord was talking to him. And it says that the angel of the Lord was there. The angel of the Lord appears to Hagar in Genesis chapter 16 and has a conversation with her. And she says, oh, no, I think I'm going to die. Why? Because everybody knew that if you saw the face of God, then you would die. And so we're going to see here in just a second that Gideon has that same response. The angel of the Lord appears to Samson's parents when they couldn't conceive, and they go to the temple, and they say, Oh, Lord, we want to have a baby. And the Lord, angel of the Lord appears to them, and then they have the same response. And they say, Oh, Lord, we realize that it's you that we were talking to, the part of the Godhead that appears in human flesh. I'm doctrinally on very good ground. <laughs> just want to say that. All right, so let's kind of move forward from there. The angel of the Lord, this is Jesus, the eternal part of the Godhead that appears in human flesh. Uh, that is, uh, now they're having this conversation with Gideon, verse 22. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, because the writers of scripture knew what that designation was referring to, and he knew that, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord. See, he calls the angel of the Lord, sovereign Lord. He realizes who he's talking to. He says, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And what's Gideon all worried about? What again, he's worried about, hey, look, if I see God face to face, that's a recipe for death. Look at Exodus chapter 33 and verse 20. When God said to Moses, verse 20, you cannot see my face, Moses, for no one may see me and live. This was the general rule. But there are plenty of times in scriptures, however, where people saw God face to face. This is one of them here when Gideon's talking to Jesus, the part of the Godhead that appears in human flesh. And God made special provisions in these situations so that those persons would not die. For instance, when Jacob wrestled with God, I mean, the part, you can't grab a hold of God the Father and wrestle him to the ground. You can't grab a hold of the Holy Spirit. The part of the Godhead that you can grab a hold of is Jesus. So Jacob was out there wrestling with Jesus, with God. For instance, when I mentioned earlier about Samson's mama and daddy, and so and here's another instance of this, that Gideon, uh, with Gideon here, where he um, sees God in the flesh. So Gideon is worried that he has seen this messenger of the Lord, this this special edition, if you would, of the Godhead, and he's worried that he's going to die. Look at what Jesus tells him, verse twenty three. But the Lord said to him, okay, prove my point right there. But the Lord said to him, Peace, don't be afraid, you are not going to die. So the messenger of God, who is God, the special edition of God, tells Gideon to set the bread and the goat and the meat on the rock and to pour the broth all over top of it, soak it down. And in verse 21, he said, It says, with the tip of his staff that was in, in Jesus' hand, the angel of the Lord's hand, the angel of the Lord Jesus touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire flared up from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and Jesus disappeared. Now you would think that having had this experience, right, that Gideon would have gone, okay, I'm ready to run through a brick wall for you, Lord. You want me to jump out of this plane with no parachute on my back? Whatever you ask, I will do it, God. I believe. You'd think that that would have been Gideon's response, but that is not what Gideon responds with in fact his little faith meter is just starting to just starting to bubble just a little bit it's just starting to move look at chapter 6 and verse 37 Uh, he says again a second time he asked God for a sign he says look God I'll place a wool fleece on the threshing floor if there's dew on the fleece but there's all around it on the ground it's dry then I'll know that you will do as you said so he's saying, hey, God, I'm a, I'm a, I, need a, I need a sign. I need another test. I'm going to throw this wool fleece out there on the ground. And in the morning, if the fleece is wet and the ground around it is completely dry, oh, then, I mean, I really appreciate you coming by, Lord. I, I really appreciate you coming and, and the whole thing. and you, I got to talk to you, and, and we brought you the, 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 the food and all this bread, and, and, and you made it cause it to flare up. I appreciate that. But I, I need... I need one more sign. Just not quite sure. And so God capitulates and he agrees. And um, the next morning, Gideon wakes up and the fleece is full of water. I mean, it's just like wring it out, water's dripping, and you can barely pick the thing up off the ground. And the ground all around the fleece is dry. I mean, you say, wow, another great verification that indeed. This is God's will for Gideon that he's supposed to go and lead the Israelites against the Midianites. Uh, Gideon should be ready to just, I mean, that meter should have just gone, ding, 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 right? He, just, he should just be topped off right now. But Gideon still doubts. He gets up the next morning. He grabs the fleece. He wrings it out. Water's dripping. All around it on the ground is dry. And, but he still says, hey, God, look, don't be angry with me. Verse 39. Don't be angry with me, but if you would let me make just one more request, just, just ask for one more sign. I want to be extra certain, extra certain. He says, this time, make the fleece dry and the ground around it wet. And again, God agrees. And the next morning, Gideon wakes up. The fleece itself is totally dry and the ground all around it is wet. Friends, this is a man of little faith. Okay, well that's as far as you want to go with our passage for today, which means it's time for us to ask our most important question, which is what difference does any of this make to me? You say, Gordon, that'd be pretty neat if I was like hung up my fleece jacket in the closet and I woke up the next morning and it was just dripping wet and all the other clothes lined up alongside of it were dry. But you know, aside from something like that happening. What difference does any of this make to me? Well, let's talk about that. You see, there's another character in the Bible that is known for his doubt. Uh, This guy was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, a fellow by the name of Thomas. And Thomas has been dubbed by Christendom through the centuries as Doubting Thomas. uh, If Gideon was the Doubting Gideon of the Old Testament, then we got Doubting Thomas in the New Testament. Um, And if you have your Bibles, you can flip over to John chapter 20. I just really, real quickly hit a couple of verses here where Thomas interacts with Jesus post-resurrection. You see, Jesus has been, he died three days before. um, And so it's, it's the morning of the third day and some reports have been coming in that Jesus is back alive. And Thomas hears these reports from his friends, from the other disciples. And Thomas's response, John chapter 20 and verse 25, he says, hey, look, fellas, unless I see the nails, nail marks, unless I put my finger in his hands and in his side, I will not believe. Somebody's just playing us for fools. I mean, this is smoke and mirrors. I mean, even to have, just for him to be standing in front of me, I'm still not 100% sure. I have to physically, empirical evidence, I want some, some verification here that what y'all are saying is true. Well, in the next verse, Jesus appears to Thomas. And Thomas, like Gideon, got his sign, got his confirmation his verification that indeed the information that had been passed along to him was true now here's what i want for you to see after thomas comes around to believing look at jesus's response to thomas's doubt jesus says john chapter 20 verse 29 because you have seen me you have believed hey thomas that's great glad to have you back on board with us Glad to know you're ready to go out there and charge ahead and preach about the gospel. But you know, Thomas, who really impresses me? You know the person who's really blessed? He says, middle of verse 29, it's the person who has not seen me and yet believes anyway. That's who impresses me. And then verse 30 the author, John, adds this little message to us as his readers. John says, verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs that the disciples and the presence of his disciples, that they could look at, they could see, hey, look, there goes Jesus again, did another thing, healed somebody else, fed some more people, delivered some more people. And so Jesus doing all this stuff over the course of the days after, between when he was resurrected and he ascended into heaven. And he says these things are not recorded in this book. And of course, those signs, as in the case of Gideon, helped the disciples believed. It brought them along, helped them to be ready to jump out of the airplane with no parachute if God asked them to. And then verse 31, but he says, these things are written that you, you. May believe," He said, these things are written. You're not going to have the benefit of a putting your hands in Jesus' side. You're not going to have the benefit of seeing him stand in front of you. What you're going to have are these things which are written so that you may believe. See, friends, in Jesus' opinion... It is a far greater evidence of faith when you have not seen and yet believed. And to help us believe, God gave us in writing a testimony of his activity, not just when Jesus was here on the earth, but of all of his activity from the beginning of human history all the way through the birth of the church. These things are written that we might believe. What's this have to do with your life, with my life? Friends, God is looking for people who will take the written word of God, the Bible, at face value. People who will believe it just the way it's written. People who will believe it And base their faith in Jesus and their confidence in Jesus and their trust in Jesus and their obedience to Jesus on the surety of the written word of God. Not on some sign, but that you believe it because it is God's word written down for you and for me. A testimony of who God is, of his activity in the world, of the death and resurrection of Christ. The Apostle Paul described it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. We live by faith, not by sight. Faith in what God tells us in the Bible, that he is who he claims to be, that his promises are true, and not by what we have to see him do. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 defines faith this way. Faith is being sure Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain, that's deep down in your heart, friends, certain of what we do not see. You say, Gordon, that's really all well and good. I mean, that's some good preaching material type of stuff, but I got a question for you. I got to tell you, I have been struggling. Uh, I mean, I've been praying. I've been getting on my knees. I've been asking God to change my situation. I know that God has the power to change my situation. But what's really happened is my situation hadn't gotten any better, and my situation's only gotten worse. So, preacher man, what do you say to that? Well, I'll tell you what Adoniram Judson said to that. Adoniram Judson, Judson, we have a picture of him. We'll throw him up here on the screen for you. Real... Uh, Austere-looking fella, right? Um, Adoniram Judson felt a call back in the 1800s to be a missionary to Burma. He didn't know the language. He didn't know the customs. He had never been to Burma. He had never seen a TV program about Burma. He just knew that God was calling him to go to Burma. He was here in the United States. And in 1812, he and his wife hopped on board of a ship, and they set out to fulfill God's call in their lives. Now, the thing you got to know about Adoniram Judson, this guy is sharp. He was valedictorian in his class, he was fluent in Latin, He's fluent in Greek, He's fluent in Hebrew, and so he was a sharp guy, but when he got to Burma, it took him three years just to learn the language. I mean, here's a guy who's schooled in learning language, and it's just a difficult language for him to learn, it took him three years, 12 hours a day, studying underneath of a tutor to learn, who's that dogged, to, to, to learn the language. After 10 years of preaching and sharing the gospel in Burma, after 10 years, he had 100,000 people come to Christ. Nope. He had 2,000 people come to Christ. Nope. After 10 years, 18 people had come to Christ. Now, if there's ever a guy who could have said, Lord, I need a sign. <laughs> to confirm that this is really, I should be doing what I'm doing. I mean, this is the poster child for that. In fact, what made it very difficult for people in Burma to convert to Christianity is there was a law on the books in Burma that if somebody left Buddhism, if they, if they left Buddhism and converted to some other religion, that that person would be sentenced to death. So it became a very difficult thing for people to give their life to Christ. In 1824, war breaks out between the British and the Burmese over some, uh, in, some disputes between the Indian border and the Burmese border. And Judson, because he was Anglo, because he's a white guy living in Burma, stood out like a sore thumb, right, was accused of being a spy for the British. And so he got wrapped up in this thing. He wasn't, but he was, he was accused of that. And so he gets thrown into jail. He spends the next 20 months in two different Burmese prisons that are rat infested, disease infested. He was hung from his feet, uh, with only his shoulders and his head resting on the ground, he was tortured. He was hung from his feet for days and days and days on end. With, um, he had a friend of his that wrote him a letter, and he said, hey, I wonder what the prospects are for the gospel in Burma. Here's what Judson replied in his letter, and I quote, the prospects for the gospel are as bright as the promises Friends, here's a man whose troubles and difficulties and trials in his life were not anchored to those troubles. Uh, here's a guy whose, I'm sorry, his faith was not anchored to the troubles of his life. Instead, and you know, many of us, we've been praying, Lord, change our situation. Uh, Lord, uh, I need you to turn things around. And God hadn't turned things around for us yet. And so we're going, well, God, if you're not going to turn things around, then maybe you're not who you say you are. And so our faith is anchored to the fact that God didn't fix in our problems. But Adoniram Judson said, hey, look, my faith, it's not anchored to my troubles. If it is, then I'd given up on God a long time ago. His faith was anchored to the written Word of God and the promises of God contained therein. 25 years, Adoniram Judson ministered in Burma. God used him to translate the entire Bible into Burmese. God had used him to start over 100 self supporting churches. God used him to lead over 8,000 Burmese people to Christ. And included in that 8,000 was a young man named Ko Tha Bu. And after Ko came to Christ, he went back to his people who lived up in the highlands of Burma. And he shared the gospel with those people in the region of Burma there. And today, there are over 150,000 Christians living in the highlands of Burma because one man heard the call of God. And his faith in God wasn't anchored to his troubles. But it was anchored to the written testimony of who God is. Thousands of churches there today, hundreds of village schools teaching Christianity and the Bible. You say, Gordon, what's the point? Well, the point is a life that is anchored, friends, to the written word of God is a life that can withstand anything. If you're sitting around waiting on God, waiting to go do what God's told you to do because you're waiting for some sign, maybe God will give you a sign. Maybe he won't. But the Bible says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Lord, life throws us all kinds of curveballs and discouragement. And yet, Lord, we know what's true. Will we yield? Will we go with the flow? Will we do, take the path of least resistance? Will we give up on you all together? Or will we hold on to who you have declared yourself to be in this most reliable, truthful witness, the written word of God? Lord, we pray that you would cause faith in us to bubble up. Or may we not have to need or necessitate some sign and be a doubting Gideon. But may we, like Adoniram Judson, say, Lord, you have called me to this. You have spoken over my life. This is how you want me to live. This is what you want me to do. And Lord, because you have spoken, I will trust in you. In these quiet moments of communion, Lord, as we remember your sacrifice, Lord, stir in our hearts, cause faith to rise. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe.